Great God, we are here to praise you and to adore you. Father, as we as we open your word today, may we may we be humbled and may we be re- renewed in our minds and transformed in our lives. Father, we would not just I would not simply be preaching something without your spirit working and an unction. And Father, may we not listen as if it were just another talk or just another thing that we're hearing from you with the goal to be made more like Christ. That we would live more for, for his sake and for your glory. Let us praise you now as we we preach the word and hear the word preached. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, Grace Fellowship Church. Guests, welcome from out east. Glad to have you. It is uh it's been a mm, interesting getting back into the swing of home. Uh, even in preaching, I didn't get my normal sermon prep this week as I went up to Cedar Falls on Friday for a for a funeral that took me took us longer and more time than I thought. So, all those things have been interesting, and I'm thankful for all of it. And I'm very thankful to be back with you. Uh, this is where God has placed me, and I I can I can never express enough or be thankful enough for the reality of that in my life that I get to stand in front of you most weeks and open the Word of God and. I get to live my life with you as a brother and your pastor. I found myself in, in, in many conversations over the past month, many in Kenya and back here even at home this past week, conversations concerning the sufficiency of Scripture. So I want to take a little time to address this this important topic before we get into today's text. So, the sufficiency of Scripture was something that we, 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 the church has worked out over the centuries. And there have been times that's come into uh, argument and it's been settled. And it, it's settled, Second uh, Timothy three sixteen seventeen. 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So all Scripture is theanustas. It's breathed out by God. So all Scripture is breathed out by God. And what it's useful for is to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. That the man of God could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That every good work that we would need to live out as a Christian, we would be equipped for by the Word of God. And then in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, I appeal to you. Remember the first 11 chapters of Romans being this beautiful, in-depth gospel presentation about all that God has done through Jesus Christ. And, And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, because of all that, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is just what's reasonable. It is just what's reasonable to give your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. With what? With Scripture. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. With Scripture, we have our minds renewed that our lives would be transformed. Scripture is given us to teach us, reproof us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. That everything we need is contained in the Word of God for how we would be saved and how we would be sanctified and how we would live. The sufficiency of Scripture is a term that gets thrown around. And there's not really a, a definition. There's, there's a couple of definitions that we will utilize just for the point of discussion. There's not a universal definition, but both of these, I would say, are very acceptable. All the Christian needs for a life of faith and service. Or all the Christian needs for faith and practice. So everything we need as Christians for faith, for what we should believe, and for our, how we should live, our practice is is in the Word of God. How to be saved and how to live a, a, a life glorifying God. It's in the Scriptures. It doesn't tell us how to shovel snow. So it doesn't tell us how to shovel snow, Ryan. You're not going to find it. But it does tell us how to work and for whom we work. It certainly tells us that. Our, our Confession of Faith, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, it addresses this topic in the very first chapter, in the very first paragraph, in the very first sentence. The beginning of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says this, The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Of all saving knowledge, of all faith, and all obedience. How to be saved, what to believe, and how to obey is all in the Scriptures. We need nothing else. Paragraph 6 of chapter 1. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential, everything essential, for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. Everything, the whole counsel of God, everything essential for man's salvation, faith, and life is explicitly or implicitly in the Scriptures. Everything we need. So, so if cooking an omelet is a good work, well, then everything we need to know about cooking an omelet is in the Scriptures. Paragraph 10, the Supreme Judge, for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, human teachings, and individual interpretations and in whose judgment we are to rest is nothing but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. In this Scripture, our faith finds its final word. When we have a disagreement concerning on how one is saved, or what we ought to believe, or how a Christian should live, we must use Scripture 
to argue that, to discuss that, to come to a conclusion about that. I, I, know, I know we're all probably shaking our heads to some extent. And maybe there's nothing in your life right now that is, is bumping up against this. But again, in Kenya, a number of things that were talked about and preached about and, and discussed, like, like dowries and, and kikuyu ways and traditions of men. And the, and the wrestling match, it is the traditions of men in, 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 in uh, Kenya and, and the Word of God and how they bump up against each other and, and what we ought to do about that. And then, and then last week's sermon. Brother Tony preached on a topic that is sensitive to many people. And in that sermon, he used a plethora of Scripture to make his case. Many people will likely, and some already have, taken issue with his strong statement, his admonition against psychotropic medications for Christians. What one must do if that's where they find themselves is they must use Scripture as their reason for something different. And then be willing to talk through the Scriptures that were presented to make a case. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Whatever the topic is, if it is the dowry in Kenya, if it is the use of mind-altering substances, what we must bring to our conversations are the Holy Scriptures. As Christians, that is how we decide how we how one is saved, what we are to believe, and what it looks like to be obedient. The sufficiency of Scripture does not say it tells us how to best remove snow from a sidewalk in Davenport, Iowa in 2023. So I won't argue with Ryan that it's a spiritual matter whether or not he shovels the snow with a, a shovel or a blower. He'll decide that as he is a professional snow remover. Gets paid to do it. If I don't like it, I don't have to hire him. But as far as a spiritual matter, he's to do that unto the Lord and he's to do that with honesty and integrity. That we will talk about. Because that's what the Scriptures would have him to do. So we won't get into quarrels over the proper way to remove snow. But when we start talking about things like mind-altering substances, there's, there's a real discussion that needs to be had, and Scripture needs to be brought to bear. On any topic, wherever you find your toes stepped on, through a sermon or through a discussion or through your own Bible reading or through anything that goes on in your life, be willing, as a Christian, to have those discussions through the lens of the scriptures. Not through the traditions of men. I really don't care about the dowry system for the Kikuyu. I don't care that they have a tradition there that they follow with the elders in their communities. If it goes against the scriptures, it should stop. 
And if it doesn't, then it's fine. Let's remember that because Scripture is sufficient for the Christian, that's what we use to have our discussions and our dialogues. And don't use silence as your argument. Use the Scriptures. Okay? All right. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And then please stand as I read that verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You may be seated. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. The Luke 9.51 represents a, a major turning point in Luke's gospel. It, it changes focus from his Galilean ministry, which has been the focus for the last, the first part of the book of Luke, from the temptation in the desert, well, the announcement of Jesus, then to the temptation in the desert, to the transfiguration. We've seen Jesus' ministry uh, takes a shift from, from public proclamation to mainly training and teaching the twelve is what we're going to see. From now to Passion Week, he's going to start to face a lot of opposition. To this point, he's had lots of crowds and people kind of, you know, starting to stir a little bit, but he hasn't faced a lot of opposition. He's going to face a lot of opposition almost continually. So for the next six months or so in time and for the next 11 chapters or so, we're going to see Jesus traveling around Judea and Perea and back into Galilee some. And lots of these... Lots of these um, things we see in, in Luke in these next chapters, they're, they're only in Luke's gospel. From Luke 9.51 to 1927, we find a lot of the most oft-quoted passages in all of Scripture. Today's passage is oft-quoted. Uh, a little bit, next couple of weeks. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We find that in this next section. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Uh, but I warn you, fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I will tell you, fear him. Five sparrows are sold for two cents, and yet not one is forgotten. But aren't you more valuable? Indeed, the hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. Now worry about life, about what you'll eat or what you'll wear. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. All these things are contained in this next past, these next section that we're going to be going through. 16 of the 18 parables that are exclusive to Luke are going to be in this next part that we're going to go through for the next few months. The prodigal son, the good Samaritan. And it all starts with, with this right here in, in verse 51 of chapter 9. This, this turning point. This, this change from what's been mainly focused on, on Jesus' coming, the Messiah's coming, to now a focus on His going, His leaving. 
For Jesus, here we see the return to glory was near. The return to glory was near. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. When the days drew near, sumplerao, to come to an end of a period of time with the implication of completion of an implied purpose or plan. There was, there was a fulfillment. The, 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 the time of Jesus being here was drawing near. The time of Jesus no longer being on this earth was, was drawing near. There was, a, there was a plan that was coming to fruition, and, and we could see it from here. It was, it was, again, shifting from His coming as the Messiah to going as the Savior of lost, lost souls, as the, the risen Redeemer King. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, Analempesis, to be taken up into assumption, ascension. This, this time was fulfilled. It was about time for him to ascend back to heaven. That's what it says here. When the days drew near, when this, with this, this completion of his earthly ministry, it was going to be time for him to be taken up. The, the noun there, Analempsis, that is a noun, the verb form, analambano, is used in Acts 1-2, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Acts 1-9-11, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus, Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Acts one twenty two, when, when they're replacing Judas with Matthias, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he, Jesus, was taken up from us. One of these men must become a witness to his resurrection. So when the days draw near for him to be taken up, it's not to be put on the cross. It's looking beyond that. It's saying the days are drawing near where he is going to be ascending into heaven. He's going to go back to glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up. In glory. The time was near when Jesus, God the Son, would return to glory. No longer on earth in a lowly human body. No longer around sin and sorrow and suffering. But rather, ruling and reigning in glory. The time was coming near. Ephesians 1, 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. In, in Luke 9.57, we see it was almost time for God the Son to return to His Father's side to rule and reign. This is what Jesus, this is what Luke is saying. The time was near, the days drew near for him to ascend back into glory. Hebrews 8.1 Now the point 
And what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. This is where Jesus is now. God the Son now sits in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He is risen, He is reigning, and He will return to judge and and bring vengeance and judgment when He returns. But for now, He has ascended, and He's at the right hand of the Father in glory. And in Luke 9... We're seeing where these days are drawing near when he was going to ascend. When he was going to return to glory. But it doesn't say he set his face to go to heaven. It said he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The time of his return to glory is coming and he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. When the days drew near, this is, this is such an encouraging, empowering passage of Scripture in my own life. And I trust it will be in your lives as well if it isn't already. Jesus' time to return to heaven, to be back where, where He is ruling and reigning, when He is sitting at the right hand of the Father in perfection, That time is approaching and he sets his face on Jerusalem. Because before he could go to glory, there were some things that had to be accomplished. He set his face. Before Jesus would ascend back to heaven, he first had to go to Jerusalem, so he set his face. Sterizo ho prosopan. It's a semantic idiom. To fix one's face, to decide firmly, to resolve, to make up one's mind definitely, to make a decision with emphasis upon finality. Jesus was resolute. He was resolved. He was single-minded. He was laser-focused on going to Jerusalem because it was about time for him to ascend to glory. Why? We just saw in Luke 9.22 saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus set his face on Calvary, on Jerusalem, on Passion Week, on God's plan of redemption. Jesus set his face on on Jerusalem because that was God's plan for his life. He's going back to glory. But that's not his focus. It is his focus, but what he's first focused on is the cross. To set one's face. This is very strong language for a Jew that would have been listening and 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 it has Old Testament references, which I think will be helpful for us to look at. When we think about, it says, in, in, in our passage, it simply says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It doesn't sound as strong as it ought, possibly. When God was sending Ezekiel to go talk to the house of Israel, and they were going to be stubborn, and they weren't going to listen, and they were going to be hard-headed, In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 8, Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. 
like emery harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Jesus was hard-headed. His face was set. His countenance was sure. He was, he was being sent to Jerusalem to testify in front of the Sanhedrin and the religious elite. And they were going to be stubborn. And they were going to reject. He was going to face, we're going to see he faces lots of opposition between now and the cross. And he stays focused. There, these, these stubborn aggressive, violent rejectors that he was going to come in front of at the Sanhedrin and all the religious elite and those who would shout crucify him. They were hard-headed and he was more hard-headed. This, this, this language of setting his face, it comes from Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50 is one of the four servant songs is what they're known as. They're, they're, they're songs of the servant, songs of the Messiah. They're all in the book of Isaiah, and there's four of them. And this was the third of the four is where this statement is going to be found, and we'll look at it here in a little bit. We're going to start with the first of the servant songs found in Isaiah chapter 42. This introduces the servant of Yahweh. Remember, Isaiah was written 700 years before. And then we're going to hear how this is written about the Messiah, whom we now know was Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Does that sound familiar? What happened at the baptism of Jesus? God says, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit descends and alights upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard on the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you the Messiah in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. We saw this language in the announcement when Jesus was preaching in, in Nazareth, when he, was, when he was preaching in the synagogue. He was using this language of, of what he was there to do. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This this first song of the servant in Isaiah chapter 42, it introduces the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, 700 years before he came. The second of the servant songs speaks in his 
his work in the world and of his success. It's found in Isaiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. When he was in Mary's womb, the name given him was told to Joseph and Mary. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Ephesians 6, Hebrews 4, Revelation 1, 2, 19. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Just like they had just witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God shone in Christ and through Christ. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Messiah, the servant song, this servant Jesus, God the Son, was formed in his mother's womb, in the womb of Mary, to bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He said, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's not enough. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach out to the end of the earth, redeeming Gentiles as well. This is the servant song. This is this is the song of, of the coming Messiah. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. This is, this is the song of the servant. This is what Jesus would come to do. He's going to, to, to those that, that hunger and thirst will hunger and thirst no more. I'll make my mountains a road and my high wells should be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar and behold, these from north and from west and these from the land of Sion. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. The Lord has comforted his people. And will have compassion on his afflicted. The Messiah will be the agent of Yahweh's comfort. Come to me, all those who are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. This is the servant song. This is what we see in Isaiah of the coming Messiah. This is what we see of Jesus Christ. The fourth of the servant songs is in Isaiah 52.13-53.12. And probably the most commonly looked at and known. We'll go back to the third one in a minute. This, this, this fourth servant songs describes the suffering and the triumph of the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, 700 years earlier, this was written. Isaiah fifty-two thirteen. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up, 
and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was no different looking than a normal man. There was nothing special about how he looked. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, we've seen this many times. This is the servant song. This is what Jesus would come and do. He would be despised. He would be rejected. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. This is what, this is what he had his face set upon. He had his face set upon Jerusalem. He was oppressed and was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is what he had his face set upon. To be crushed by his father. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This Messiah, this servant, this, this servant of God would be crushed. And yet he would see his offspring. Jesus will see his offspring in glory. He will be raised from the dead. God's plan of redemption will happen. Out of the anguish of his soul, this is what he had his face set upon. He had his face set upon Jerusalem because it was about time for her to ascend back to glory. But before he went there, he was going to be in anguish in his soul. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, one on the right and one on the left. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This fourth of the servant songs. 
shows that death is not the end for this Messiah. He will resurrect. He will see his offspring. Now we're going to go back to the third of the servant songs, the one that's referenced in today's passage in Luke 9. Isaiah 40, or 50, I'm sorry, starting in verse 4. The first three verses are probably more tied to 49, and it's talking about Israel being an unfaithful, like an unfaithful wife. It's, it's about Israel's unfaithfulness. And here we see about the servant's obedience. Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Jesus was the prophet who spoke comfort to those who were weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to those who are taught. Jesus heard from his father and taught the things he was told. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. The opening of the ear, this looks back to a, a custom that we first saw in Exodus 21. Verse 5, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever. This opening of the ear was a a slave saying, I am going to stay with my master. I'm going to stay with my people. And I'm going to stay with my master. And they would he would get an awl put to his ear as a sign of. So he would have his ear opened. And and the and the servant song, Jesus saying, I am the servant of my father. I'm not going to forsake my people. He's opened my ear. I was not rebellious. God the Son was a willing servant to His Father. He was a willing servant to His Master. It's it's speaking of His total submission to the will of the Father. God, if, if there's any way, take this cup from me, but not my will, Your will be done. You see, He has His, His, His face set on Jerusalem. He, He has His face set on the, on even the, the suffering in the garden. But his, his, his face is as hard as flint. Verse 6 of Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This third servant song of Isaiah It's prophesying to the treatment that Jesus would receive as a willing servant of Yahweh. Matthew 27, 30, And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The servant, the Messiah... Jesus of Nazareth would suffer these horribly humiliating things in order to carry out Yahweh's plan of redemption. He knew all these things were coming. And then then verse 7, where we see what's referenced in today's passage. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore... I have set my face like a flint. 
a flint, a hard rock, immovable, unbreakable. I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. I trust in God. I trust in my Father who is in heaven. Right here in Luke 9, we see Luke writing about Jesus knew it was the time was near when he would ascend back to glory. And so he set his face like a flint on all of these things that would happen to him. Being spat upon, being slapped, in disgrace having his beard pulled out. The, the, the anguish of his father and the wrath of his father. All of these things. But he knew he would not be put to shame. This is this, is, this, is this steadfast, courageous, hard-headedness, single-mindedness that Jesus had as he turned his face to Jerusalem. His friends tried to persuade him differently, didn't they? Along the way. Tells Peter to get behind him. He he he's he's suffering in an agony and, and and bitterness, if you will, as as he's as he's bleeding in the garden. But he stays with a face like flint. He could have he could have called down a legion of angels, but he didn't. He was carrying out his father's plan. He was being mocked by those who walked by and they shook their heads at him and mocked him. He was, again, agonizing on the cross. But he stayed with his face like flint. This is our older brother. This is our, this is our archegos. This is our, our founder. This is our, our, our leader. This is what he did. He knew he was going to ascend into heaven, and so he sent his face on Jerusalem. He was going to glory, but he had work to do and suffering to live out. He knew God would help him, didn't he? He knew God's promises were true. He knew he would not be ashamed. He, he knew of the joy that was set before him. He knew of glory. And he knew of his possession that he would have. I'll probably come back to it, but, but I, I want us to think for a minute. When there's something that we're to do for God, do it. With your face like flint. Set your face towards your suffering on your way to glory. Your life is about glorifying God. My life is about glorifying God. Let's set our faces like flint. Like our older brother. Like our king. Like the one we say we follow. That we do follow. We will follow him to glory. Some through the fire. Some through the flood. But all through the blood. Back to servant song in Isaiah 50. And then the reference that's made. Verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? 
Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. His face was set like flint towards Jerusalem where he knew God would vindicate him. He knew that he would be justified when he was risen from the dead. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Those who reject him and judge him, they judge him guilty. They will be destroyed. And he knew that. But he had a people to redeem and he knew that. So he set his face face like flint, a, a hard-headedness, a single-mindedness, knowing of all the suffering he would he would take on for his possession, for his master to whom he was a servant. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This is, this, is the, this is the hope that he brings. And he says, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. Walk by your own light, Sanhedrin, these Jewish leaders, and those who would cry out, crucify him. Walk by the light of your fire and the torches you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. He had his face set like flint on Jerusalem, on his way to glory, knowing that most would despise him, reject him, and hate him, and cause him oppression, turmoil, and trouble. But there was a people he was going to save. There was a plan that his father had given him that he was going to carry out. Because he had given him his ear. We too, we too are slaves of Christ, are we not? Have we not given Him our ear? Have we not said willingly, we are your slaves, we are your servants? We trust you for glory, we trust you for suffering, we trust you for pain, we trust you for hatred, but we are, we are on a mission, on our way to glory. This is, this is our King. This is our older brother. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. This is our pattern. Jesus knew what awaited him. You think he was ignorant to Isaiah chapter 50? Well, probably not since he wrote it. But remember, he was truly man who is truly going to suffer and be tempted in every way just like we are. And he needed the power of the Spirit and God's words to live these things out. He knew these servant songs were about him and it is referenced right here that he set his face to go to Jerusalem referencing back to the servant songs particular this one that we're looking at now where he set his face like flint on Jerusalem. He knew that he would face incredible persecution, pain, hatred, rejection, and yet he courageously set his face toward Jerusalem. 
Keep it in mind the rest of the, the rest of the time we go through Luke. This is what he's up to. He's up to something. He's up to Jerusalem. And he's up to his ascension. And all that came in between it. Knowing what was coming. We can know what's coming because it's been promised to us. Just like him. He knew he was going to suffer to die. He knew he was going to be raised up. He knew he was going to ascend back to glory. And he was going to be in perfect oneness with his Father. But it wasn't going to happen without all of this struggle on the way. So it took a hard-headedness. Look with me at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 now. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run the race with endurance. The race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the archegos. We've looked at this before, but the leader, he's the, the, the predecessor, remember, on a ship. The one that would swim to shore through the dangerous waters with a rope tied around his, his waist. He would get to shore that the others could pull themselves in by the rope. This is our Jesus. This is our Archegos. This is the founder of our faith. Keep our eyes on him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. What joy was set before him? Glory. Glory. And his people. This joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He, he showed us the way to fix our eyes on glory and be ready to go through all the trials and persecutions and troubles along the way. But I can assure you, this is why I'm telling you this is such an encouraging verse for me. Reminding myself regularly that I am to set my mind, set my face towards whatever comes my way on my way to glory. All the things He's promised me. Which aren't all roses and cupcakes. Matter of fact, I don't see a lot of promises for any roses and cupcakes, even though He gives me some. Which I'm thankful for. But that's not what I'm looking for. That's not what Jesus was looking for. That's not what we're to be looking for. We're looking to glory through the struggles. But if we aren't resolute, if we aren't hard-headed, how are we possibly going to do that? How are we possibly not going to be distracted by all the things of this world and all the things that we think we want and need to be happy? How possibly can we do that? I don't know how. It is not enough for me. I don't, I don't know what glory looks like, but I look forward to it. But here's what I know between here and there. It is not cupcakes and roses. I'm going to have a cupcake. He's going to put them in front of me, but that's not what it's about. It's about hatred and persecution and suffering and pain and sorrow. There's two, there's two types of courage. There's a courage that's that's like in the moment. Mm. You went under snow. There takes some level of courage to, to, to get out of that. 
Tyler comes back to help you. There's a, there's a momentary courage that just happens in the moment. There's also a planned courage. And that's what we see here with Jesus. He is planning his courageousness before it even happens as he sets his face on what he knows is coming. Can we plan to be courageous? Can we plan to be faithful on our way to glory? Can we set our faces, fix our faces, hard-headed like Flint, going through this earth with all of its troubles on the way to glory? Do we see the suffering and the difficulty and know it's coming and go there anyway? It's what he did. This is the courage of Jesus. He, he, he sees the cross on the horizon. He sees Jerusalem, all that comes with Jerusalem, and he's got his, he's got his face set on it. He did it for the joy that was set before him. So that's not contradictory. But here what we see is not a focus on glory. We see he knows it's about time he goes back to glory. So his focus is the suffering. His focus is the cost. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, Paul says. But I press on. To make it my own. Make what? Your own. Resurrection from the dead. Glory. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. What lay ahead for Paul? Beatings. Imprisonments, hunger, struggles. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any if anything if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, we don't, we don't have our minds set on these earthly things. We don't have our minds set on pleasure and comfort. We have our minds set on Christianity and following our Lord and Savior into whatever He brings our way that may bring difficulty and separation and hatred and persecution. And we just keep pressing on. We have our our faces set like flint because we know that God is with us and we know His promises are true. We know He'll never leave us or forsake us and we know He will take us home. We're going to be hard-headed. Closing thought. Jesus' example of selfless determination is humbling, amazing, 
and inspiring as it requires a response from all his followers. I want to, I want to read that again, and I want you to consider what, what I just said. Jesus' example of selfless determination is humbling, amazing, and inspiring. And it requires a response from all of his followers. There's a response required of us as we see his focus. As Paul then tells us of the focus that he has. Ask yourself, is my face set like flint toward glory, toward the joy that has been set before me? Is it set like flint on glory? Suffering will come. Persecution will come. Hatred will come. We, we, we look at this regularly, but it just is on my mind right now. Too, too many of us, and too many times I'm not, persecuted or hated or suffering because I don't have my, my focus where Christ had His focus. I have my focus on the things around here that I like so much. Avoiding pain and looking for pleasure. Avoiding confrontation and looking for peace. Peace when there is no peace. Can you see the glory and courageously march toward the suffering that comes before it? Can we see the glory and courageously march towards that glory and march toward the suffering that comes before it? When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. To be spat upon, mocked, beaten, scourged, hung, asphyxiated, separated from his Father in heaven, buried and dead, to rise again and then to ascend, to sit at the right hand of the Father. All of those things were what Jerusalem meant. And we will watch, even in next week's passage, the, the distraction the disciples have and the focus that Jesus has. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We, I'm so thankful for the example of our Lord, our King, our Savior, our brother, our founder and perfecter of our faith, Christ Jesus, as he as he was on mission. And Father, while our mission is not to die to redeem people, it is our mission to live for your glory. It is our mission to pre- pre- present your gospel, to give the hope. It is our mission to be faithful to the truth even when it brings suffering. Father, may we be on mission with our faces like flint, seeing suffering and trial and pain and persecution and marching towards it on our way to glory. 
for Christ's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing hallelujah for the cross, hymn 287. Hallelujah for the cross.